Securities offered through Securities America, Inc., member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services offered through Securities America Advisors, Inc. Investors Advantage and the Securities America companies are separate entities. The opinions and forecasts expressed are those of the author, may not actually come to pass, and should not be construed as a recommendation of any security or investment plan. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Welcome to Fiscal Fitness with your hosts, John Grace and Daniel Medina. They have all the questions about investing, planning, retirement, and the future. You could say it's all they live for. While it can seem daunting getting everything sorted out and the important questions answered, they'll do their best to make it that much easier. Now, here's John Grace and Daniel Medina. Welcome to Fiscal Fitness, folks. This is John Grace and Daniel Medina, my good cohort in crime. He's the math man here at Investors Advantage, and we're on Voice America every Wednesday from 12 to 1. Delighted that you could spend some time with us this afternoon, because uh, we like to look at what's going on in the world, how to make sense of all this, and how you might apply it from the standpoint of what the heck you're doing. And, and really what we're all about is making sure that we create like an environment where people feel like, well, how can I create a beach entrance to get into the pool or into the water as opposed to off the high dive? to get to where I'm trying to go. And by the way, that where I'm trying to go, for a lot of people, they just don't know. But we'll take the time to help them figure out what is it that you're trying to accomplish and then what is it that you're trying to avoid in terms of losses. We think that's a, the, the one-two punch that uh, people don't look at. They simply put the money on X or Y or black or red and feel good when whatever they put the money on went up. They think that is a testament to their intelligence. I say it's a testament to their good luck, and luck is not a strategy, and neither is hope, uh, as opposed to, well, let's put together the, the goals so that you can see what you're trying to do. As I'm fond of saying a minute ago, we, we, we were all flying the same airplanes. I'm sure we'll be doing that again, but it's still the case that we are drinking the same water and breathing the same air. So let's uh, help each other and figure out at what point do you want to make work optional, ideally, and then how much money would you like to see coming in on an annual or a monthly basis? And for most people, they, 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 their, their simple um, intent is to re reproduce the income in retirement that they were making when they had to go work for the money. So at some point, you've got to be, get your last paycheck. And now you've got another 20 or 30 years uh, on hopefully this still green, beautiful earth. And now we need to make sure that 50, 100, 200,000, whatever it might be, what about needs to be behind door number one so that it's 60, 65, 70, 72. Again, it doesn't matter on, on your terms, what age do you want to make work optional and how much money do you want to have come in at that point in time? But and then we want to make sure this money has the better odds of showing up at the same value after inflation and taxes for the next 20 or 30 years. So yes, it's, it's, it, it is a job, but it's not impossible. That's the good news, it can be done. And then right behind that, it's so important uh, to look at what kind of losses you can accept. And, and maybe this is a good example. I've been thinking about, uh, you may find that I'm, I'm, I'm really am fond of uh, analogies. And the one I have right now is, let's suppose you have X number of dollars on the 10th floor, knowing that the market tends to take the stairs up and the elevator down. It goes up slowly and it comes down quickly. Uh, witness where we were just a year ago 
Uh, in five weeks, market's off like 35%. That's the S&P 500 from February 19th through March 23rd. So let's say you're at the on the top floor. It's a 10-story building, and you have X number of dollars. Here's the question. If the elevator starts declining, at what floor do you want to put your money to rest on, on that floor, so that the elevator can continue, continue its descent to the first floor, to the basement, and maybe below the basement when it's suddenly, like last year, off 35%, that's below the basement. And I have to tell you, I have several neighbors that we, we see each other frequently, but they've, they've never really talked about their finances. And a year ago, uh, I, I bumped into like three neighbors in a row, right, just over the same weekend. These are gentlemen that I happen to see uh, in the neighborhood who all were really, I thought they were going to cry. Uh, they wouldn't tell me how bad it got, but they clearly were having a tough time because their accounts had gotten hammered. I, again, I don't know what their losses were. I know what the index did, but the way they looked to me, they were worried that uh, one, the, 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 the hole was bigger than they imagined, and two, they worried that they might not get back to even, and that's a, that's a real worry when the hole gets bigger. So we want to keep the hole within your parameters so it's easier to get that money back to the first floor, the second floor, maybe back to the 10th floor. But, and Daniel, you can help us see this, uh, you know, by percentages, floor by floor by floor, 10 floors, right? That's 10 times 10 is 100, so it's back down to zero at the, at the ground level. Uh, each floor would represent 10%. But again, you know, do you want to get off at the ninth floor, which means you only lost at 10%? Or is it the fifth floor, which means you lost 50%? Or, or is it, you know, even worse than that, it's off 80% and now, you know, the odds are just not in your favor. So as we are fond of doing as well, we like to look at how the markets are doing. And instead of just looking at it on a daily basis, which really makes it difficult to see any kind of a trend, we at least want to look at it on an annual basis. I mean, we're only, what, uh, the 24th of February, and we've got, what, uh, three more trading days before the end of the month, and then it's March 1st, uh, right around the corner. But looking at the Dow, I mean, this is just a terrific number. It, we're actually uh, back in positive territory today. The last six days, I believe we were in negative territory. We'll, we'll talk about where we think we are going from here. But so far, year to date from January 1 in real time, uh, as of right now, the Dow is up about 14.8%. Now, that's really a fantastic number. And uh, God knows we would love to just close out the year right here, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and these are uh, the old style stocks. Uh, we look at the S&P 500, which is generally a better mixture of stocks, 500 different companies. It's up 4.47%, uh, uh, up a, a whole 1% today. So it's a good day in the market. Then we go to the NASDAQ, which of course was our magnificent uh, straight to Mars vehicle last year. So far, the, the, I'm sorry, the tech stocks have kind of gotten beaten up, particularly the last six days. It's up all of 5.3%. Now, what's interesting, when Daniel and I look at these numbers, it's kind of like the tech numbers and the Dow have flipped in, as compared to last year. Uh, last year, the, the, the tech numbers were heads and shoulders way ahead of the Dow, as well as the S&P. Now we have the flip of that, where the NASDAQ is up a third of what the Dow is almost so far this year. So we'll see how, how, that, uh, how that plays out. But again, it, what, what's more important is what kind of declines can you live with? No matter where the money is, 
how bad can the declines be before you don't go crazy? Uh, because some people wake up after the, the hole is too big and clearly they have regret and they're afraid they won't recover. And in some cases, that's a real concern. So you might want to limit your losses if you can, to the extent that you can, so that the hole doesn't get any larger. Certainly it, it stops at where it is. And now we do what it takes to, to recover. So let's talk about, uh, this is tax time and tax, uh, the accountants are busy as ever. This is their Christmas season, God bless them. And one of the things that people like to uh, discuss is what's the difference and what are the benefits along with the, the, the negatives to let's say an, a Roth IRA versus a 401k. Uh, so which is better for your retirement? And uh, Daniel, why don't you, you you start us off by seeing the two methods for maximizing your savings during our working years? This is one of those really popular questions that we kind of just get over and over again because it's a confusing topic and we're talking about taxes. And one of the drawbacks to our industry is we, we, we love our jargon and we use words that people just don't understand for the most part. So there's a big difference on how you make contributions to retirement accounts that's either traditional or pre-tax or Roth, which is post-tax. Now, typically, for the most part, people have the option of both in their 401k and they have the option of both in an IRA and they serve different purposes. So let's talk about traditional first because that's the one that goes back the furthest and that's the one that most people do. So a traditional contribution to a 401k or an IRA is a pre-tax contribution to a retirement account. What that means is you get to deduct dollar for dollar the amount that you contribute to a retirement account. So to make it simple, let's say you put $5,000 into some retirement account and your income for the year was $100,000. End of the year, you get to deduct the $5,000 contribution. So you're not paying taxes on $100,000, you're paying taxes on $95,000. Gives you a nice little tax benefit. Now the drawback- Yes. It's important. Some people, for some people, it's it's absolutely necessary. They need they need that deduction because there's no other way for them to get good deductions. For mo- for a lot of people, if you're a W two employee, you just don't have the option for many deductions. You're going to take your standard deduction because it's usually better than itemizing nowadays, and you just don't have much else. So that that pre tax retirement account contribution becomes your second biggest uh, tax tax weapon, if you will. Yeah, and, and let's just point out here that you know uh, there's uh, the, the the difference in terms of the bottom line. As when I was talking to someone just last night about trying to save money on your own versus using the efficiency of a retirement plan, we'll talk about the good news and the bad news because see, the good news is that most of the financial advisors and the accountants seem to be in a collusion, stuff the account with you know tax deferred dollars. Just keep doing that, and here's one of the reasons. If you're trying to save on your own versus using the tax efficiency of a tax deferred uh, contribution kind of account, you, it, it, your account's probably 30% richer, if you will, in 20 or 30 years as compared to paying taxes every year. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is that when you have a traditional retirement account, there is no way to take any money out, no way whatsoever, no exceptions, where you can avoid the taxes. And then let's make sure you understand this. The IRS code says that every year from a traditional retirement account, there is a withdrawal level that you must meet. And independent of what your account does or what your wishes might be, your withdrawal level increases 
a little bit every year. I think, what, at 72 now, we're, what, 3.62%, if I'm not mistaken, Daniel? That's uh, about right, if, yeah. Okay, it's in that ballpark, but if you're, you're going to live till 95, you may discover it's more like 10 or 12% that you must withdraw. So we want to make sure you see both sides of the equation, the good news and the bad news, because there's been so many people where they started taking withdrawals at 70, it used to be, now it's 72, but then, you know, they, they stick around for a while and now they're mad, one, because they don't really need the money and two, they keep paying the tax regardless of what the account did. So we want you to see, as I say, the, the pros and the cons. And then finally, uh, on this point, uh, looking at the contribution levels for uh, employees relative to their 401k. And please start as early as you possibly can. Please start with something. Please start with more than what the company contributes because it's not enough. But the, the levels are $19,500 both for 2020 as well as 2021. And for those over 50, you're eligible for an additional catch-up contribution of $6,500, $6,500. So that's some meaningful dollars that you can set aside to help you get to, as I say, well, how much money do you need behind door number one? And we keep using this example for people to kind of get it. For one couple mid-30s, uh, we discovered that they need to save 15% of their gross, 15000 on 100 and it's $1,300 a month, get a 7% return. And now we'll have two, they'll have $2.6 million along with their social security, a little pension in this case. And that will be the equivalent of their $100,000 or so that they, are, that they are working to earn right now. So do you have a preference, Daniel, in terms of the 401k versus the Roth? Well, we actually didn't talk about the Roth yet, John. Yeah, was a nice tangent, yeah, was a nice tangent you went on. Yeah, so. sorry. <laughs> so that's that that's that's a pre-tax contribution. A post-tax contribution or a Roth contribution is the same contribution to a retirement account, but you don't get to deduct the contribution on your taxes. So in the same scenario, you, you put $5,000 in a retirement account, it was a Roth or a post-tax account, end of the year, you still pay tax on that, on that whole $100,000. You don't get to deduct that contribution. Both accounts grow tax-free. Um, both are, are, they're taxed differently on the way out. Uh, John kind of alluded to this, but the difference between the traditional traditional and Roth money is in a traditional account, the money is taxed on the way out. In a Roth, you don't pay tax on that when the money comes out, so long as it's there for five years or until 59 and a half, whichever sooner. So in both cases, you avoid the 10% penalty once you cross 59 and a half and you take a withdrawal. If with the majority of the accounts, 401k, 457, uh, 403b, IRA, withdrawals are going to be taxed at your ordinary tax rate. Uh, there's a 10% penalty for withdrawals prior to 59 and a half. That goes to zero after 59 and a half. But also after 59 and a half, the Roth has the advantage in that you know the taxes have already been paid. And guess what? The IRS is not requiring you to spend any of this money. So it's entirely up to you as to what amount, if any, you'd like to withdraw, knowing that at that point, again, past 59 and a half, there are no penalties, no taxes whatsoever on, on, on any withdrawals at that particular point in time. So the big question we get is which one is better? Right. And, and that's, that's a really hard question to answer because the question becomes, which, which is a bigger benefit to you? The, ca- the tax deduction or the tax-free income later? And the 
question is it's hard to answer abstractly because we don't know what your situation is going to be 20 or 30 years from now. But the, the way you want to answer it is when is your taxes going to be lower? And we have no idea how to answer that. I don't. I know what taxes are today. I know what a contribution would do to your taxes uh, as far as a benefit today versus a Roth. But we we don't know what tax rates are going to be 10 or 20 or 30 years in the future. Well, and, and so that's one of the reasons why the Roth, it looks, is, is very attractive from the standpoint, there's no guesswork here. If current tax laws prevail, there's no taxes on any withdrawals after 59 and a half. With well, everything else... If all, things stay, if all things stay yeah, the same... Things are, yeah, that's what I'm saying. If the tax laws prevail, that's how it, it is right now. The so, Roth is, is a superior account. Or in terms of not having to pay taxes on those withdrawals. And again, not having to meet any kind of withdrawal limit uh, or expectation or requirement really by the uh, Infertile Revenue Service. So we'll pick this up on the other side of the uh, break and look at uh, taxes and where we think they're going, uh, but also uh, talk more about uh, so how people can pay the tax in advance, uh, at pay as you go, if you will. So uh, stick tight, uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. At Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. To reward our nation's frontline employees and clients, we're offering our financial planning services free for anyone serving in those roles. So whether you're a nurse, a member of the police force, or a retail employee, we'd love to sit down with you and help you plan for the other side of this pandemic. Please feel free to share this offer with the critical infrastructure workers you know who are providing services where they are most needed. Visit YB4.com or call us at 805-495-2077. That's YB4.com or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Fiscal Fitness. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at ybpoor.com. Now, back to Fiscal Fitness. 
Welcome back, folks. John Grayson, Daniel Medina here on Fiscal Fitness at Voice America. As I say, we're glad you spent some time with us. We're talking about the Roth versus traditional retirement accounts, the pros and the cons. And Daniel, we've got some uh, income requirements, don't we? Or limits? I mean, we can if, if we're within the threshold, it's 19,5600 for catch up for last year as well as this year. But uh, not everyone is able to contribute. Is that true? That's right. So there's there's certain rules on how much you can contribute to a Roth, and the the, the more you the more you make, the less likely you are you'll be able to contribute to a Roth. So bear me a second. Let me pull up these limits. Okay, and and folks, so uh, you know, just to kind of keep the uh, conversation going a little bit about taxes, is everybody complains about taxes, and that's a fascinating conversation. But I'm very fond of asking people, do you remember what the top tax rate was when Reagan was in office? If you were making, if you're married and making about $200,000 when Reagan was in office, the federal tax rate alone was 70%. I know. See, it's like, you don't even remember that, right? And you were there. You weren't making that kind of money probably in the early 80s, but that was the highest tax bracket. And if we want to study history just a little bit more, we can see that, lo and behold, the rates have been higher than that. Uh, around uh, World War II, if I'm not mistaken, they were 92, 94%. Uh, that's the highest level we've ever seen. And, and we believe, there's just no doubt about it, tax rates, we've been saying this for a while, so clearly we're wrong, but they, they, they should have gone up by now. They are absolutely going up at some point in time, somewhere along the line, just because the revenues that are being generated are insufficient to take care of the services that we take for granted, particularly in an environment where we've got this uh, pandemic, uh, COVID-19 going on, a disaster of epic proportions. So what are those numbers, uh, Daniel? So for 2021, for Roth IRAs only, no, there's no income limits for Roth 401ks, but for Roth IRAs, if you're single, if you're filing singly, you get your income has to be under 140,000 and between 125 and 140, your income starts, your, how much you can, how much you can contribute phases, phases down. If you're married, then it goes up to 206,000. So if okay. you're over 140 single or over 206, 206 married, you cannot make a Roth IRA contribution. IRA contribution. So what, but there's no limit on a conversion. Is that correct? No, no income limit on making a conversion. That's correct. So the difference between an, a contribution and a conversion is where the money's coming from. In an IRA contribution, you're you're taking money from income or from your, from your bank, from your, from your cash and putting it into a Roth account. In a conversion, you're taking money that's already in a traditional IRA and you're putting it into a Roth IRA. So the big difference there is the source of the money. So let's talk about some strategies here because uh, sometimes for whatever reason, we see this combination occurring where people are kind of building up cash. They don't really know what they're going to do with it. At the same time where they have a, an income year that let's say 2021 wasn't as good as 2020 or vice versa. So in these kinds of situations, we like to uh, kind of give people a sense of what the taxes are going to be so they can see what the cumulative a combination of all those taxes are over, say, the, that 20, 30-year period. At the same time, we want to say, maybe you want to convert some of your traditional retirement accounts into a Roth. And 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 let's make the, the discussion very simple. The real question is, how much tax, how much check are you willing to write? <laughs> how much tax are you okay paying? So it's not like you have to, it's not all or nothing. You have 
$200,000 in a traditional retirement account and you want to convert that into a Roth, you could say, okay, just how, how much can I, can I convert if all I'm willing to spend is $5,000 a year? We have several uh, couples on that kind of a program so that they're not uh, biting the bullet, a big bullet in terms of paying the tax. It's in bite-sized pieces. It, it, it certainly totals to the same number, but you, now you're paying it today in these tax rates to put the money in that place where you know tomorrow we're going to be able to take withdrawals without having to pay those taxes because we've already paid the taxes. Is that a good way to kind of summarize what we try to suggest, Daniel? Yeah. If it's a choice for us, we'd rather have all the money in tax-free accounts because we don't want to pay taxes later, but that's not typically uh, affordable for a lot of people because making those, doing those conversions is expensive from a tax perspective. Yeah, and so for some, it's not a, a, a right or wrong answer in terms of how you configure what you have. Some people like both. Uh, they like having some money in a position where it's not going to be taxed because if you again say it's two hundred thousand dollars and you eventually convert a hundred thousand into a Roth, but you keep a hundred thousand dollars in a IRO rollover or an IRA, uh, now you know you're going to be taxed on withdrawal for the rest of your life on a hundred thousand, but you have a hundred thousand in a place where you do not have to take withdrawals and you know that those withdrawals are not taxable. So the RMD doesn't kick in on two hundred thousand because you've already converted a hundred. In this example, it only kicks in on the hundred thousand. So some people like having the combination. And, and when we talk to younger people, uh, they really seem to be more uh, interested in, in, a, in not having the deduction on a traditional account, but just uh, using the, the Roth IRA uh, as opposed to having any kind of a, a traditional account. But again, it, it sometimes makes sense to have both. That way you keep your options open in terms of how the tax laws might change sometime in the future. Okay. I think we covered that. Shall we talk about, uh, this is a surprising kind of a, a statistic that uh, we see that uh, home price growth has surged at the end of 2020 at the fastest pace in, in eight years. Uh, that's pretty phenomenal. Uh, it was a record year for the housing market despite the COVID pandemic. And uh, the uh, S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller National Home Price Index posted a 10.4 annual gain in December, up from 9.5% in November. That's the fastest growing rate since 2013. Looking at the 20-city composite, posted a 10.1% annual gain, up from 9.2% the previous month, beating estimates of a 9.90 year-over-year gain. And this is all compiled by... Uh, by Bloomberg. So, Daniel, what happened to see this kind of a bounce so dramatically? So, you said something really important there for a second. I think you said your words were um, even even because of COVID or in spite of COVID, something like right, that. Right. Right. COVID actually helped a lot for specifically for home prices. It was a really interesting year when we looked at at real estate and the question on on what drives home prices, it's really, for me, it comes down to affordability. What can people afford? And that's going to dictate what they're, what they're, what they can buy. So one of the, the other thing is demand. And for, if we're talking pre-COVID, if you were looking for a house and let's say you had some kind of office job and now you're, you and your, your spouse are looking for a, for a house and you want to buy something, you're kind of looking and then COVID hits and all of a sudden the world stops for a little while. 
now you're probably working from home. So having, having, your, having, a, new, having a house of your own uh, makes a lot more sense. The demand is still not there, but the supply dried up. A lot of people took their houses off the market. And if you were, if you were thinking about selling your house going into COVID, then you probably put that on hold for various reasons. One, you probably didn't want, want that dis- disruption. Two, you didn't want people in your house. But the demand on the other side didn't go away. So we have we, we had a scenario where demand stayed fairly stable, but supply went way down. On top of that, interest rates went way down. So that combination is reasonable to cause prices to rise. Yes, okay. exactly. Because we have we have more we have more we have the same dem- demand for less supply. And if you go back to economics 101, that's the key to higher prices. Well, and, and let's talk more about this because this is what's happening right here, right now. And, you know, a number of people in various areas are moving from the cities to the suburbs and preferring to have homes and wanting to have their personal spaces. But we have been paying since 1999 up to $10,000 a year for independent research. And there's some larger issues that are in the mix that most of us don't study. And let me just summarize it this way. Particularly when it comes to residential real estate, we've all been schooled to look at interest rates and location and inventory. And what Daniel's talking about is the inventory has tightened up. So that's an environment with the same number of people for prices to rise. At some point, these nosebleed levels of prices being sky high has to find that there there will be a reset. And what we're saying is in summary, in terms of how we can kind of get our hands and our minds around how this economy works, the, the primary driver, we do not think are interest rates, location, and inventory. It's looking at age. It's looking at the buying and selling behavior of consumers based on age, to be exact. So this comes from the Census Bureau, and we find if, you, if you're if you a boomer, like, by the way, uh, half of the homes on every block happen to be owned by boomers, back in the early 80s, you can recall when interest rates on a first trust deed was, lo and behold, 16%. But let's notice, in the cocktail parties we boomers all enjoyed in the early 80s, the conversation was around, what did you buy, or what do you have in escrow? Because at that point in time, with inflation at 16%, by the time you closed escrow from the time you opened escrow, guess what? The property went up in value. Now, what caused that? And first, let's just recognize that the high interest rates, double digits, there's no boomer you could have told you would see 3% money where they believe you and here we are. But let's just notice when they were 12 to 16% well through the 80s, people were literally standing in line to buy a house. Why is that? Well, again, from the Census Bureau, we can see that the buying behavior of Americans occurs first at age 31, because go back and look, I happen to have been 24 because I had a godmother who was a realtor and she got me so excited about buying a house, so I had to buy a triplex. Uh, But for most of us, the first purchase is 31. Uh, so go back and look, and, and you, you, you thought you were doing something different, and you were doing what everybody else was doing. But just notice, because of all that demand, 
the interest rates didn't impede all of those purchases. And, and what I would say, say to you in terms of uh, understanding what's going on here, the United States of America is the only country in the world and the only country in history where 76 million people literally came into these United States. On top of that, we had a number of immigrants coming into the United States. So it is reasonable with that much demand, supply, demand, right? With that much demand and low supply, we have to build up to meet the demand for all of these people who are coming into the equation. Legal, illegal, legitimate, illegitimate, it didn't matter. They have to have some place to live. And so it is reasonable for home prices to rise. Now, some suggest that we might be in an environment like we saw back in the what, 1500s with the tulip bubble, where believe it or don't, one box of tulips was necessary to buy an estate. And then of course it, it blew up and it burst. So as we go along this pattern, what we see that most of us are in the middle of is that 41 is the age at which, guess what? Most Americans buy their biggest house. Boomers check box one, they check box two. It was exactly 41 on when I had to have a 5,000 square foot home for my family and I thought I was doing something unique. Well, here's where it gets more interesting. Where do we go from here? We're all hearing about um, inventory. Guess what? 78 is the age at which now two things are happening. One, that's the age to the Census Bureau reports that most Americans sell. Please recognize that boomers born 46 to 1964 are uh, 57 to 75 this year. And 78 is the age at which most boomers sell their homes. So one way or the other, we the boomers are coming out of these McMansions, whether it's on our own volition or it's on a gurney, but we are afraid that we will see um, more dying than buying in that environment. And, and wait, there's more. This uh, was a report, hopefully you saw it just last Wednesday, where the, um, the, the this was the director of uh, mortality, if I'm not mistaken, at the, the Center for Disease Control revealed on last Wednesday that uh, the age for Americans has been reduced by a year, the first half of 2020. So in 2019, it was 79. And I think we talked about that last Wednesday. And then we found the report that no, it's now 78. At the same time, Canada, I believe, is 80, and Japan is 82. Their life expectancy is advancing, getting longer. Guess what? What's happening here in these United States is our life expectancy is getting shorter. So we've got to uh, go for a, a quick break here, and we'll come back with uh, what that means as far as what we can tell and how we, again, looking at uh, supply and demand. And, and, and I'll give you some thoughts as to what uh, real estate might do uh, as we, uh, we, we move into the, the time frame of uh, boomers turning to 78 in terms of what that might mean as far as uh, prices are concerned. We'll be right back. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. At Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. To reward our nation's frontline employees and clients, we're offering our financial planning services free for anyone serving in those roles. 
So whether you're a nurse, a member of the police force, or a retail employee, we'd love to sit down with you and help you plan for the other side of this pandemic. Please feel free to share this offer with the critical infrastructure workers you know who are providing services where they are most needed. Visit YB4.com or call us at 805-495-2077. That's YB4.com or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Fiscal Fitness. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at ybpoor.com. Now, back to Fiscal Fitness. Welcome back, folks. John Grayson, Daniel Medita here at Fiscal Fitness on Voice America. We're talking about home prices and the future for home prices and the good news last year for home prices. We want to uh, turn on our high beams and look around the corner to see where we might be going from here. And as we uh, talked about in the last segment, the, the primary driver that no one has learned to study is to really take a close look at what the buying and selling behavior is of ordinary Americans. Now, the good news is the National Association of Realtors reported that the median existing home sale price rose 14.1% to an average cost of $303,900 in January from the same time a year ago. It also said the number of homes for sale reached an all-time low in January, which is exactly what Daniel was talking about. At the same time, CoreLogic Deputy Chief Economist Selma Hepp says that in looking ahead to 2021, pressure on home prices will likely remain strong, here, here I think are the important pieces of this puzzle, until either mortgage rates increase or more homes are available for sale. Now, I think, uh, is it true, Daniel, that uh, looks like 30-year loan home prices dropped to 2.5, but I think they've moved up from there. Is that right? That's about right. And uh, they, I think they, if, if, I, if, I, if I remember correctly, they bottomed just about 2.5% today. We're, they're hovering around 3%. Okay. So here we have the first sign of uh, mortgage rates increasing. We're going to talk about interest rates in terms of how that might affect the stock market on top of the real estate market. But remember the other part that uh, Selma Hep, uh, talked about, uh, that the uh, prices will be, could be affected if more homes are available for sale. And that's the part that I think is the most important piece of the puzzle to, to recognize. Just remember, 78 is the age at which two things happen. That's the age at which most people sell their homes. And now that is the age at which, unfortunately, most Americans just happen to go to heaven. So here's the question. 
here's the question. Nobody can see the future. But as I say, at some point, supply and demand does come back down to earth. And if it is the case that 76 million people, it will take probably 20 years, but when it is the case that 76 million people or 24% of the population of over 315 million or so in, in the United States of America go to heaven with 130 years worth of inventory, so that means demand's going to heaven, the supplies remaining the same, where might prices go? They might go down. And I don't mean go down and rebound. I mean go down and stay down. Uh, and that's because we have, we have not one person who's a professional has experienced, uh, because it hasn't happened before, 24% of the population going to heaven when the supply remains the same. So it would not be um, unexpected to see a decline happen in both prices of residential homes along with rents. And keep in mind, one of the things that we've discussed before, because we, uh, we've been on a number of news programs and everybody wants to know when the, the, the V-shaped recovery is going to kick in, keep in mind that it, sometimes recoveries are L-shaped that happen in the United States with both stocks and real estate after the Great Depression. It also happened more recently in Japan where both their stock prices, uh, stock prices peaked in 1989, real estate uh, peaked in 1991. Neither the stock market nor the Japanese real estate market 30 years out have gotten back to their high water marks. So if, it, if we are all connected, and I think we are, I'm sure we are, could what has happened there and what has happened here before happen here again? I think the probability is better than 50-50. In fact, I would submit to you that it would not surprise me if prices decline in the Cleveland area, maybe 13%, as compared to 50% on the West Coast. And part of that data comes from Dent Research, the, one of the companies that we pay for independent research that helps us see these larger issues that most people don't see because we're getting lost in the weeds of inventory and location and um, you know, uh, interest rates. They're, they're important pieces to the puzzle, but they're not the primary driver. Uh, it, it will be interesting to see how this plays out. As, uh, as I say, if four, uh, four to five out of 10 houses are owned by boomers, <laughs> if over a 20-year period they're gone, uh, it, it would not surprise me to see prices uh, turn direction, and that means go from going north to going south significantly. And we just don't have a replacement group of, of 76 million people, all right? We just don't. They're, they're not coming here from somewhere else. So speaking of interest rates, let's look at the stock market because uh, this is an, an interesting one to kind of uh, wrap your mind around that was out of uh, Fortune uh, just uh, last week. And, and the suggestion is that the interest rates are rising. Uh, and because of that, this source, Fortune Magazine, is suggesting that there, there could be a stock market nightmare scenario right around the corner. In, in fact, uh, what they're suggesting is that the largest stock pool, the S&P 500, could return 0% through early 2028 in the experience of interest rates rising. So if this is 2021, it, it's hard to imagine that we could see seven years of no uh, positive returns 
in the stock market, seven years. Remember, we just talked about Japan. So as I say, sometimes it's, it's good to look at history just so that you can see that, well, if, it, if that happened before, that could happen again. But if we don't study history, then we are in left to be in, in, in shock and awe in terms of uh, what's, what is happening because we didn't look to see what has happened. So we're, we're surprised. So what do you think of that whopper of a, of a claim, Daniel? I think it's I think it's certainly possible. We've been in an environment where interest rates have just been down and down and down and just, it's it's been which the, the stock market loves. The, the loves the Fed as, as long as the Fed's going to keep doing everything that they can, they're going to keep throwing all the money that they can to keep things buoyant, then I think we're in good shape. But at some point that has to, I think that has to turn around and the market has to kind of correct itself because it's it's all artificial. It seems to me it's all artificial at this point. There's a lot of uh false uh, gains in the equation everywhere. And it, and it seems to be, I submit, primarily driven by everybody's playing the fear of missing out game. Uh, we're putting the money in for a minute. We don't have a long-term goal. We don't know what we're trying to achieve. All we want to do is get rich overnight. And if I can do that uh, and, and kick your your rear end in the process, so much the better. That seems to be what we're, what we're really about. Uh, so yeah, you know, stock prices uh, love low interest rates. Uh, and some people submit that we're going to see low interest rates forever. And then yes, some people are suggesting the Fed's going to do everything they can. But here's the thing, is they say, look, for the first time ever, we have more people 65 and older than five and younger. For the first time ever in the world, that is unprecedented. So when people are saying, well, we just need to get back to where we were, guess what? We're all older than we were then, and we're not running marathons like we used to. So, you know, we're, and we're not reproducing the way we used to. Things have just changed right before your very eyes. So you could discard that fantasy of uh, interest rates remaining low forever, uh, because, and when that fantasy is discarded, the rationale for stock prices staying at these nosebleed levels, certainly the rationale collapses. Uh, we may be in for a replay of what always happens when bond yields become super slender. Rates rise, Equities often languish so badly that on big caps, you'll be likely to pocket piddling returns in the years ahead. So part of what we're just looking at what could happen, we're not uh, you know, predicting the future. We're, we're saying, as I say, we're looking at the past of what might happen, looking at the future, what some good sources are suggesting could be in, baked in the cake. And the question becomes, how do, we, how do we manage the money to the extent that we're gonna live, thank you very much, so that we don't outlive the money. And that's why for us, it's a matter of uh, put, making sure that we've got uh, money in positions where the dividends are pretty significant. They, that helps with the incomes because the dividend usually stays pretty stable. We're not so interested in as much upside. We are interested in limiting the downside to the extent that we can. And then we want to diversify in other areas outside of cash, stocks, bonds, and real estate if we can, so that there may be something that surprises us to the upside that might provide for a consistent yield and also may, dis may uh, be where we experience and some growth, but we want to see, you know, like in 2008, your house got hit, your bonds got hurt, and your stocks got crushed. Was there anything that you could have owned where you could have made some money? And that's a good question to ask. Not to say that whatever, if there's an answer, and, and we think there is, but not to say that that's the answer for the next time, but that's my point. 
by virtue of being diversified in areas that some we know, some we don't know, when we have one position that's up nearly, let's say 30%, when stocks are off and bonds are off and real estate is off, anything that had a positive return makes you feel like I, I might be able to, to, to uh, you know, continue. I, I love what Joan Rivers used to say, if you can laugh at it, you can deal with it. So whatever gives us the little space of being able to laugh at it, well, geez, three of the four accounts are down, but one's up. Thank God one is up. Well, that makes you feel like this is something that we might, uh, you know, we might be able to live through. At least in the meantime, we can, uh, we can tell the story. So do you, can you put, imagine what the odds might be of seven years of 0% on the S&P? I have no idea. I don't think we've seen a seven-year a seven-year period. Well, we did see a ten-year period here in the early decades where, we're, uh, in the it was a 2000, flat decade, two thousand ten, yes. where we were flat, and yes. that's in the last twenty years. Right. So, I mean, if you base it on that, then the odds aren't aren't that aren't that aren't that they're wild. not ridiculous. They're not ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, see, go ahead, because that did happen, and that's yes. in our recent history. And see, that's the point, folks. We've, we've got to not just listen to what other people tell us or listen for what we want to hear, because that just may not be what's real. Let's look at the data impartially, at, at particularly history. Let's get objective opinions. And then let's have some people who are helping us see both the pluses and the minuses in terms of what our expectations are. I mean, we've had the pleasure of working a lot with uh, engineers of, of all stripes. But I, and, and we just love them because they look at things differently. They, they don't want to hear the sales stuff. That's not quite what they call it. You know what they call it. Uh, but they also don't want to hear a bunch of story or, you know, pie in the sky. The way they look at it, which I think makes all the sense in the world, is two ways. One, uh, we put a man on the moon and brought him back safely, okay? And then two, uh, show me the worst case scenario. Help me recognize that and then help me determine if that's something I can live with, because if it is, I'm good. And if it's not, then some adjustments need to be made. But if you're, you know, really prepared for the worst case scenario, you, you, you're not using hope as a strategy, you, you, you recognize that this is either something I can live with, or hopefully I can make some adjustments so that if the pain isn't so severe. But at the end of the day, we all want to tell the story about what happened, as opposed to uh, living with the disaster of epic proportions. And, you know, now we're in the news because the news is talking about us, where I want you and me uh, to be on the news talking about <laughs> what we went through and how we survived uh, this last storm, right? Like the one in Texas where we see a whole state that was completely exposed, their energy grid was completely exposed for unprepared uh, climate change or weather, whichever you like to call it. But clearly they stuck they put their heads in the sand because they got a, a warning sign just 10 years ago. And then what was it, 80 years ago, they decided as a state, we're, we're going we're gonna to go, go it alone. We don't need you. We're so strong. We're so big. Uh, we'll have our own energy and, and we don't need any backup plan. I'm sorry. <laughs> that seems like a, a recipe for disaster. <laughs> and it may take 80 years for that disaster to show up, but you planted the seeds 80 years ago and you didn't revisit it. You didn't weatherize your equipment as you can. And then we see some of the legislators who are saying, oh, the problem is green energy. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> you can do better than that. We're not all idiots. <laughs> 
So it will be interesting to see, but that's why we're, we're suggesting you need to have you know, a plan in place. Our trademark is the proof is in the planning. We want you to see what your target is. If you live too long or die too soon, what does it take to educate your children so that everybody can enjoy being at the graduation, crying because yes, they finished and yes, nobody has any debt. And then we want to make sure that if the breadwinner lives too long or died too soon, financially, it's a non-event. And we've got to make sure we look to see what kind of losses, first, what kind of losses we can live with. And second, is there a way to prepare our portfolio where it might actually perform within our plus minus lifespan or, you know, the, the how bad can it get versus how good can it get? If I'm playing within that range, then I don't need that, that Hail Mary pass just to get back in the game. So folks, we're going we're gonna to leave it there for now. Uh, this is uh, John Grace and Daniel Medina here at Fiscal Fitness. Uh, we'll be right back here on Voice America next Wednesday, noon till one o'clock Pacific time. So please feel free to send us your comments and your questions. And please feel free to check out my book, Making Finance Make Sense. I won't be getting rich on it. It's all of 15 bucks at uh, Amazon. I think it's 16 bucks on eBay. But by the way, uh, Daniel, I just talked to a friend last night and apparently it's rising in the uh, bestseller list. It's in the top 100. So we're, we're making some movement and yeah, that's, that's very promise. encouraging. Yeah, super. We'll keep it going. Well, and we need your help, folks. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for tuning to Fiscal Fitness. Please join John Grace and co-host Daniel Medina again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have an excellent week.